Um, I want to start today. This will tie into the sermon. Uh, we'll see later, but I want to talk a little bit about numbers in the Bible. Not the book of Numbers, because that's the most boring book of all the books. But numbers specifically, um, there's a few numbers that have really special meaning in the Bible. So number three means like divine completion, like the Trinity is three. Um, if something is said three times, that means it's it's like it's definitely totally this. The number seven means uh, divine completion, but the job's not done yet. So like the seven days of creation or you're supposed to forgive one another 70 times 7 times. The numbers 3 and 7 are important. The number 12 is important. For whatever reason, 12 always has to do with God's leadership, like the 12 tribes or the 12 disciples. But the number I want to talk about today is 40. The number 40 appears over and over and over uh, in Scripture at really key times in, in the Bible. So you think of Noah. Um Anybody know what 40 has to do with Noah? It's a pretty pretty familiar one, Tegan. He was on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah, he wasn't on the ark for 40 days. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah, and it rained so much that the water rose above the mountains. Um, Moses' life is divided into 40s. The first 40, he was a prince of Egypt. The next 40, he was an outcast exile in Midian. The next 40, he was um, the deliverer of God's people. And then when Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the law, he did so for 40 days and 40 nights. He lay down flat on the ground, not eating or drinking anything in God's presence. Um, he did that twice, actually. The first time he was given the law and the second time. So 40 again. Um Moses then comes down the mountain, leads God's people towards the promised land. He sends some spies into the promised land and they come back, 12 spies. Again, it's 12. They come back and two of them have a good report and 10 of them have an unfaithful report. So they're in the promised land for 40 days, checking it out. And God says, because you weren't faithful to me, because you came back with this bad report for each year or for each day that you were in the promised land, I'm going to make you wander in the wilderness for a whole year. Um, and so for 40 years, God's people have to wander in the wilderness before they can enter the promised land. And, um, it says this about that. This is from numbers 14. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. However, in Deuteronomy, it says this Deuteronomy eight, two, remember how the Lord, your God led you all the way in the wilderness, these 40 years to humble and test you in order to, to know what was in your heart, whether or not you could keep his commands. So there's a purpose for him making, it's not just a punishment. There's a purpose for him making them wander for 40 years. There's another pretty famous 40 for Jesus. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. And then who remembers what the very next thing that he does is? Right after he gets baptized, what does he do? Zoe? Save a dude? Not save a dude. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Goes and saves a dude. No, he does something else first. Uh, Nicole's got her hand up. Goes up wilderness for 40 days. Yes. There we go. Nicole, I'll give you partial credit for that. But yes, Barb, you got it. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days uh, to be tempted by the devil. So before he can do any miracles, before he can form um, any sermons, he goes out and into the desert for 40 days. Um, that's what it says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then I love in both Matthew and Luke, it finishes off. 
He went to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and he ate no food and he drank nothing. And then both end with, and he was hungry, which is this great little like, yeah, I'm sure he was. And there's one more important one that I want to highlight. After his resurrection, Acts 1-3 tells us that Jesus came to his apostles, teaching them, and he it says he had to keep proving to them that he really was alive because they had seen him be crucified and die. So he had to continually prove himself. Um, I'll give you 100 points if you can guess how many days it says in Acts 3 that he was with his disciples teaching them. Ooh. Zoe. 12. <laughs> no, not 12, Zoe. Good try. Kennedy. 44. Not 44, so close. Anybody. (laughs) 40. 40, Zoe got 100 points. Um, Yeah, it says for 40 days, he spent 40 days with them before he ascended to heaven. And then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. So there's others, the judges, Elijah, the greatest prophet in Israel, Jonah, um, which is another transition point in the story of the Old Testament, Paul. Uh, He was uh, lashed 40 times minus one. Uh, That happened to him three times. So 40 keeps coming up over and over. And the most significant turning points in the history of salvation, from the flood to the formation of the church, all of these monumental turning points begin with the number 40. 40 years or 40 days. 40, 40, 40. Well, 40 plays a role in today's passage as well, as we're going to see. Um, We are told that David rules as king for 40 years total, seven years over Judah, which is the the kingdom to the south, and 33 years over all of unified Israel. That's Judah to the south and all the tribes to the north. And this makes sense because like the flood, like the exodus, like the giving of the law, like entering the promised land, like the ministry of Jesus and like the formation of the church, like all of these things, the kingship of David is a massive monumental moment in the salvation history of God's people. It's a major, major, major deal. It's a huge turning point. Whenever you see the number 40, it always represents something important, uh, as evidenced by all of these diverse stories. And the 40 doesn't just mean it's important. It means that it's a major time of transition, coordinated by the will of Yahweh. And it always ushers in a new era of understanding God's love for his people. But it's more than just a transition. We'll talk about this later in the sermon. It's not just a transition point. There's something that goes along with all of these 40s that makes the the um, coronation of David, where he finally becomes king, so important. We'll talk about that later, but I wanted to get that understanding out of the way now so it wouldn't make the sermon so long later. But 40 is important. We'll talk about why. Okay. So I said last week, I promised that I wouldn't be political and I'm true to my word. But first, here are my thoughts on this week's inauguration. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, Will not be political. Last week was the political sermon, which was eerily relevant given the attempted coup, the invasion on the American Capitol building one week prior, because our passage examined David's rise to power. Although it happened through bloodshed and vengeance and violence, David was innocent of all that. There was no blood on his hands. He refuses to grab power for himself or to kill in order to secure his claim to the throne. He refuses to be a part of any of that. Rather, he waits for the timing of Yahweh. He demonstrates grace and unity and justice and obedience in the meantime until he can become king. For him, power wasn't something to be grabbed through violence, but to be gifted through covenantal faithfulness. And that's 
should be instructive to all of us. Well, all of that was covered in chapters 2, 3, and 4 in 2 Samuel. It probably felt like a marathon. So you might be thinking, wow, we're going to be done this book in no time if Chris keeps doing three chapters at a time. Well, (laughs) silly you, because this is Chris Lance we're talking about. So this morning we're not doing three chapters. We're doing five verses. That's it. We're going small scale. I'm back, baby. And if chapters 2, 3, and 4 document how David rose to the throne of Judah and then all of Israel... Then today's passage documents the purpose of David's rise to the throne. 2, 3, and 4 show how he got to the throne. Um, Our passage today shows why he was put on the throne, what his task, what his role is. God had made a concession in allowing Israel to have a king. He never wanted them to have a king. He was their king. But if they're going to have one, then their, their kings might as well follow the model set by Yahweh. And so these five lovely little verses help establish what that model will look like. So let's read them now. This is 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 to 5. Uh, And just remember, at this point, David is only king of Judah, which is to the south. Judah, in their history, remain intermittently faithful to God. The tribes to the north, Israel, they very rarely are faithful at all. Um, And this is kind of the one time in history where they're united, is, is now under the kingship of David and Solomon. So all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. So the three reasons they give for David to become king of all Israel and Judah is, One, he is their flesh and bone, which is not like we say flesh and blood, like these girls are my flesh and blood, they they belong to my family. Um, flesh and bone there means flesh is weak, bone is strong. So you are one of us in strength and weakness. It's a vow that no matter what happens, you belong to us. Um, The other reason is that you've always functioned as our king anyway. Even when Saul was king, you did the kingly things. So now we'll just make you king. And the third and most important reason, we're making you king because Yahweh has made you king. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned, here's that number that we talked about earlier, 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. We'll stop there. So we talked about 40. 40 is important. These major times of transition, the number 40 always shows up when God is doing something new in the salvation history of his people. Each of these 40s represents this this period of transition, but it's more than just a transition. In each of these 40s, there's along with that time of transition comes a time of cleansing, a time of preparation. So the flood, the flood was a literal cleansing of the earth. God's starting over. Um, There's grace there, but he literally wipes the earth clean so he can start over, prepare a new way. The 40 days of Moses receiving the law up on the mountain, Moses was so purified by that act, he came down the mountain and his face was so radiant with God's glory that the people couldn't even look at him. He had to hide his face because he was so purified and cleansed by the presence of God. And that makes sense when God is giving the law, giving them his will for how they should live, 
that that's a time of cleansing for the, for his people. The 40 years in the wilderness was a cleansing, allowing the disobedience of the Exodus generation to burn off in the desert. And before Jesus could heal lepers or exercise demons or preach sermons on mounts or raise the dead, before any miracles or teachings, Jesus had to head off to the desert to overcome his own temptations, which is remarkable to think about Jesus needing to do that. But he did. He needed to do that. After the cleansing waters of baptism, even Jesus had to endure 40 days of further cleansing to refine his purpose and his, his, his um, clinging to the will of God. Only after his 40 days could Jesus begin his world-shattering ministry. And the church, the agent of God's cleansing love and truth here on earth, even the church needed 40 days of preparation in the presence of the resurrected Christ before the Holy Spirit could fill them and empower them 10 days later at Pentecost. So in all of these things, 40 is a time of cleansing and preparation, and 2 Samuel 5 is no different. It's a time of transformational transition. Um, Israel has had a king, but he, uh, under David, that's where Israel becomes like a world power, becomes a major player on the world stage. But it's also a cleansing and a preparation. We've waited about 20 chapters since meeting David before he could finally become king, which is kind of remarkable. For us, that's over six months of sermon time. It's not surprising to us that David is finally anointed as king over all God's people, both Judah and Israel. Um, that's not surprising. But what is surprising is how long it took. It took years and years and years after his first anointing for David to finally be made king. And now that it's here, scripture wastes absolutely no time in impressing upon us just how crucial this moment is in the history of God's people. David is king for 40 years. Clearly, this is a, a significant era in scriptural history if that number, 40, keeps popping up. But what exactly makes the kingship of David so crucially important? Is it just that he's a good king? No. Well, no, that's part of it, though. Part of it is that he's a good king. There are precious few good kings in the split history of Israel and Judah. Again, David unites all Israel. His son Solomon fortifies Israel, makes it even bigger and stronger. But Solomon is also the one who causes the downfall of Israel. And it splits again, never to be reunited. Um... But Solomon was a half-good king. There's one other good king whose name is Joash. Both of them are said to have reigned over Israel for 40 years as well. Um, there's lots and lots of kings to choose from, and none of the bad kings reign for 40 years, but two of the good ones do. So 40 years seems to be the mark of a good king, like David. But David's goodness isn't the only thing that makes 2 Samuel 5 such a monumental moment in Israel's history. In many ways... The kingships of David and Solomon are the climax of Israel's existence as a nation state. That's the high point. It was all leading up to that, and then it's all downhill from there. Until Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Never again were God's chosen people blessed with such material wealth, political power, and cultural significance. They were a unified people with military and religious authority. No longer were they just this nomadic collection of tribes gathered around a fancy tent where they worship their one god no matter no longer were they a small player on the stage now they were legitimate in the eyes of their enemies they were strong and comfortable and wealthy finally living it up in the land that god had promised them now i'm saying all of that like it's a good thing 
But as we've seen before, and as we'll see ahead in 2 Samuel, wealth and power and comfort are not necessarily good things for people trying to remain faithful to God. A God who demands and deserves absolute allegiance. Thrones are not great for selfless dedication. They don't make selflessness very easy. But at the very least, 2 Samuel 5 is a major transition period for God's people, making it worthy of the number 40. Israel, for the next 80 years at least, is a major empire. But there's still more to this passage than just the goodness of David and the transition of Israel into a powerful empire that makes this so important. There is a greater truth at work here. There's a deeper cleansing, a holier preparation, and a more significant reason why the number 40 pops up in the context of David's inauguration ceremony. The story of David comes full circle in in this chapter as a portrait of what leadership means in the kingdom of God, whether that's the Old Testament empire of Israel or the New Testament portrait of Jesus or the kingdom of God that we participate in as followers of Almighty God. This The principle that's true here that makes this so crucially important is just as truth for David and for Jesus and for us. It's super important. And it's the story of David coming full circle. When we first met David, way back in 1 Samuel 16, what was David doing? That eighth son, so the first seven sons have rights and entitlements. The eighth son has none. He's a nobody from nowhere in backwoods Bethlehem. He's the definition of obscurity. What was he up to, this David? He was a little shepherd. He was a little shepherd boy. That's exactly right. He was a shepherd. It's not an accident that when God looked for someone to lead his people, someone who shared God's heart, it's not an accident that God found that person among the sheep. That's not an accident. From the very beginning, as far back as Abraham and Moses, Abraham and Moses were both shepherds as well. And God has called shepherds to be his leaders. David is part of that grand tradition. God wanted a man after his own heart to become king, and he found a shepherd. And that makes sense because a shepherd is exactly what a leader is to see himself as. I'll say that again. Throughout the history of God working with his people, all the way back as far as Abraham, all the way now to present-day Clyde, Alberta, Canada. A shepherd is exactly what a leader is to see his or herself as. A leader is a shepherd. The problem with kings in the ancient world and famous people in the modern world, too, is that these kings, <clears throat> these kings, these famous people, were proclaimed as divine figures. They were... They behaved as gods. For the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all these major powers around Israel, all their enemies around them, for all these powerful contemporaries, the kings were either worshipped as gods, like Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was literally God on earth to them. And that was true of the Babylonians as well. Um, either they were worshipped as gods or given absolute power like divine figures. The Romans were happy to crush the Christians because those little Christ ones, those Christians, proclaimed that Jesus was Son of God. But the term Son of God was exclusively and idolatrously connected only to Caesar. Caesar was the Son of God, Son of the Gods. And when Jesus comes around and these Christians start worship, worshipping him, the, the Romans thought that was blasphemous. So they sought to stamp out the Christians because Caesar was God to them. As gods, these kings craved only power 
and praise and prestige and were willing to stamp out anyone who dared raise a voice or raise a fist to their throne. They grew fat off the blood of their own people and the people that they conquered. And they answered to no one. That's how all these other kings were. And that's how a lot of Israel's kings would behave as well. But it wasn't supposed to be like that with Israel. From the beginning, there was to be an understanding. Sure, you can sit on your throne, you can wear your crown, you can be a king. But that doesn't make you a god. There is only one god and he is the one you are to answer to, like it or not. David has been exemplary at submitting to the true uppercase K king of Israel, and that's Yahweh. We will see now that he is lower K king of all Israel, things start to unravel for the humble shepherd king from Bethlehem. Things don't go so good for David from now on. Why? Because he will forget that he is to be exactly that, a humble shepherd king. And the key word in that title, humble shepherd king, the most important word there isn't king. That's not the important word. The key word is shepherd. That's the key. That's that's his primary job description. That's the monumental significance of 2 Samuel 5. The important part, the part that earns this passage, the number 40 being a major transition point, isn't the king part. It's the shepherd part. It's found in verse 3 where it says, And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. The ruler part is the afterthought. That's the part that gets tagged on. That's not the important part. The important part is you will be shepherd of Israel. The main message that the elders of this now unified nation of Israel wish to impart on their new king is that he is to be their shepherd. He is to view every single person in his kingdom, from great lords and landowners to humble widows and orphans. All the people in his kingdom are the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his flock. It's a role that David's familiar with, having spent his early years as a shepherd. It's a role that he's qualified for, but he's not qualified for it because of his authoritative military prowess, because he's a great soldier. He's not qualified to be a shepherd because of his impressive looks or even his radiant goodness. He's qualified solely because he shares the shepherd heart of God. That's what qualifies him as king. He shares the shepherd heart of God. A leader in the kingdom, then and now, isn't somebody who is smoothly charismatic. Thankfully for me, because I am not smooth or charismatic. It isn't somebody with all their religiousness figured out. Again, thankfully for me. It isn't somebody who can argue convincingly or refrain from vices or speak eloquently or manage people effectively. It isn't somebody who can budget wisely or sing gorgeously or quote scripture perfectly. I mean, a leader may have those things. David certainly had many of those qualities. Um, And we know people here on earth who have many of those qualities as well and are terrific kingdom leaders. But those things aren't what define a leader in God's kingdom. It didn't in David's day, and it doesn't today. Instead, a leader in God's upside-down kingdom is qualified for leadership only by sharing the shepherd's heart of God. That's what makes you a leader. That's what makes you, uh, that's what gives you any kind of power and authority, is humility, having the shepherd's heart of God. A leader is a servant. That's the number one thing Angie and I learned at Alberta Bible College. That's the number one thing they impart on you. If you're going to be a leader, you better be a servant or you're not a leader. Period. You're just a boss. 
that's nothing special. The world has thousands of bosses. It doesn't need more bosses. What it needs is leaders. A servant is a leader. A leader is a servant. A leader is a giver of care. A leader is a shepherd. Whatever gifts a leader has are from God. They don't get credit for them, but those gifts aren't what make them a leader. Having a shepherd's heart is what makes a leader. That's why my title, by the way, is pastor, not chief inspiration officer. <laughs> pastor is the Latin word. Thank you for that laugh, Zoe. <laughs> pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. That's what pastor means. It means shepherd. It comes from the exact same root word as pasture, the place where sheep go to be fed. The Latin word for both pastor and pasture is the pa part of the word, and it means to feed, to tend, to guard, and to protect. That is the role of a leader in God's kingdom. That was David's calling in 2 Samuel 5. That was Peter and Paul and James's calling in the New Testament. That was Bob's calling for decades, including 10 years here in Clyde. That's been mine and Angie's calling for the past 15 years and counting. To shepherd God's people, that's the job. To feed, to guard, to tend, and to protect the fellow sheep in our care. It's as humbling as it is inspiring to think that a leader's role is to shepherd. One sheep hearing God's call and guiding the other sheep towards it. But 2 Samuel 5 isn't just a message for for kings like David or rural pastors like myself. It's a message for all of us. We're all called to model our faith after the faith of David in this passage. We're all called to have this same heart for the beautiful sheep around us. We're called to have the heart of a shepherd. We're called to have God's own heart. Arguably, the most famous and well-known poem from the past 3,000 years is Psalm 23. I'm certain that every one of us can quote at least part of Psalm 23, or at least familiar with it. It's a poem written by, or at least attributed to, the same David that we're talking about here. And Psalm 23, more than anything, is a wonderful and inspirational demonstration of the shepherd's heart of our God. So let's read it together. Actually, is there somebody who'd like to unmute and read Psalm 23 for us? I would really appreciate that. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along the right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks so much, Angeline. Well done. It's all there. The pastor's heart of God, the shepherd's heart of God. Feed, tend, guard, protect. It's all there in Psalm 23. When we walk with our shepherd, his protection brings us peace. His care for us brings us satisfaction and refreshment. His guardianship brings dignity. He anoints my head with oil in the presence of my enemies. That's something you did for sheep in in ancient times. You you put oil on them to keep bugs off them. It's something a shepherd does for his sheep to protect them, to care for them. Um, He leads them to green pastures. 
He gives them good water to drink. All of these things, it's all there. And that's God's heart for you and for me. And none of this is temporary. It's permanent, as it says in the last words of the poem, lasting all the days of our lives, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So that's the heart of God, which is to be modeled by leaders in the kingdom. And I'm, I am not the only leader. I hope I'm making this clear. This is not a message for Chris Lance, the pastor of Clyde Christian Bible Church. You are all leaders. You all have your own flocks to care for, all of you. Um, and we have to model that leadership after the shepherd's heart of God. Of course, as we know, not all leaders exhibit this kind of heart. I know I don't model this shepherd's heart all the time. Um, some shepherds of God's people represent the opposite. They are bad shepherds. They get sleek and fat by misleading the sheep, by neglecting the sheep, or by victimizing the sheep. We can all think of stories of church leaders who've done that. This became the default setting for kings of Israel after David. They crushed their people to grow in power and in wealth. And by the time of Ezekiel, God had had enough. I'm not going to read all of Ezekiel 34 because we're getting late already. So I'm going to give you some homework. Read Ezekiel 34. Uh, with this, all of this in mind about the shepherd's heart of God. It's 31 verses. It's not super long, but it is powerful. And it's aimed towards the kings of Israel who were terrible shepherds who abused and misled and neglected their sheep and got wealthy and powerful because of it. Um, Ezekiel 34 is an indictment of the terrible shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel. But in the midst of that condemnation is this beautiful portrait of God's shepherd heart. So I'm going to read parts of Ezekiel 34. I'd love if you read the whole thing, even when service is done. So part of it says this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and I will it will no longer be food for them. So these leaders, these kings, they were devouring their own sheep to get wealthy and powerful. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Here's verse 11. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. And doesn't this sound like the parable of the, the hundred sheep? A shepherd has a flock of a hundred sheep and he leave, one of them roams away and gets lost in the wilderness. So he leaves the 99 because they're fine. They're okay to go pursue the one lost sheep. And God is saying, you terrible shepherds have abandoned the sheep. They're all lost because of you. So I will be the shepherd. I will come down and collect my sheep. And he continues. He says, I will tend them in a good pasture. And the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. And there they will be fed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Verse 15. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. He goes on to condemn leaders who get fat on pasture land and then trample that pasture land, leaving it unusable for other sheep. Not only do they consume more than they, their fill, they make it so nobody else can have what they need. It's a powerful warning for our culture of consumption, where we I have everything I could ever need. And still I consume more and more and more when there are people who have nothing. We normalize in our culture extreme poverty. 
We trample the pasture as we fill ourselves. But he continues. He continues and he returns to the lineage of David, which would eventually be realized through Jesus. And Ezekiel writes in verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. And by the way, when it says David, David has been dead for hundreds of years at this point. He's talking about Jesus, descendant of David, who will come. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. And this whole heart-rending chapter ends with this verse, verse 31. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. Please, please read all of Ezekiel 34. It is so good. But that's the shepherd's heart of God. That's the requirement for any sheep who is called to shepherd God's flock. Seek the sheep, feed the sheep, protect the sheep, with a special focus on the lost, the neglected, and the outsider sheep who the world doesn't care anything about, who are forgotten by the world. The world, and even the church, is guilty of worrying about getting fat and comfortable and powerful, trampling the other sheep in pursuit of the kingdom of me. God sees it happening and he is going to step up and do something about it. He's going to send his son to be the greatest shepherd of all. He won't just seek and save the lost sheep as he sought and saved this lost little sheep speaking to you this morning. He won't just seek and save the sheep. No, this son of David, this servant king, this good shepherd will take it one step further and even lay down his life for his sheep. After you do your homework reading Ezekiel 34, go ahead and follow it up with John 10. Um, read all of John 10, please. They, they go together. They're in conjunction with one another. And in John 10, Jesus shares how he is the good shepherd, the ultimate fulfillment of shepherd kingship, as described in 2 Samuel 5 and Ezekiel 34. Jesus takes those passages and Psalm 23, and he elevates it. He, he makes it go deeper and stronger. So here's a small piece of John 10. You will read the rest of it. And I will check on you that you've done your homework next Sunday, all of you. This is an assignment for marks. Um, but John 10, uh, verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. That's where he takes it a step further. There have been other good shepherds. David was one of them. But Jesus is the capital G, good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. There will be unity between Jew and Gentile, just as David represents unity between Judah to the south and Israel to the north. They will be unified as one flock with one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Pause there. I'm almost done. I've been brought to tears at different times by all three of these passages, by Psalm 23, by Ezekiel 34, and by John 10. I remember reading Ezekiel 34 for the first time in Bible college and being completely blown away because Ezekiel is a pretty boring book. Like there's some crazy stuff that happens in it. There's these spinning alien wheel things. There's He has to lay on his side for like a year and a half straight. Like Ezekiel has to do crazy stuff. But it's a weird and boring book. But then you get to Ezekiel 34, 
and the Valley of the Dry Bones as well. And these, they're so poetic and so powerful. The Shepherd's Heart of God. It's, I've been brought to tears by all three of these passages. And together, they all come together to demonstrate what makes the, the coronation of David in 2 Samuel worthy of the number 40. It's a time of transition into kingship, but it's also a cleansing and a preparation. God uses David and Jesus and their hearts for God to cleanse our understanding of his kingdom. As the true king, Jesus Christ is a servant king, a good shepherd who laid down his life to call each one of us sheep into his flock. There is no sheep too lost. There's no sheep who's wandered too astray uh, for the shepherd to find them. There is no sheep that is too injured or too weak to be lifted on his arms and brought back to quiet waters. If you are to be a leader, then you must lead like this good shepherd. You must care for, nurture, and protect those in your flock. And each one of you has a flock to care for. Each one of you has people in your sphere of influence who look up to you, who care about you, who love you. And you are a leader to those people. You are a shepherd of a flock. Kingdom leadership ain't just for the pastors. It's for all of us. Well, our good shepherd is also, he's not just the good shepherd, he's also the sacrificial lamb. Just like in the two songs we sang, he is powerful king, he is also sacrificial lamb. He lays down his life, which is what allows him, as it says in John 10, to take his life up again. It's a kingdom of beautiful paradoxes. He is shepherd, he is sheep. He is sacrifice, he is king. He is humble, he is powerful. He lays down his life and he takes his life up again. It's a kingdom of paradoxes where the greatest honor the greatest thing you can achieve, the greatest status you can have is to be a little sheep in the care of the shepherd. It's a kingdom where we stop stuffing our mouths at the trough and save some of the greenest grass for the hungry sheep around us. It's a kingdom where anyone can hear his voice and be guided by his rod and staff, even if we've spent 40 days or 40 years wandering in the desert. I'll close with this mix of 2 Samuel 5, Psalm 23, and John 10. The Lord is my king, and my king is a good shepherd. In him I have everything I need. Even though I wander away through many dark valleys, his voice always calls me back. And his rod and his staff, the tools of his shepherding, are what comfort me. Surely his goodness and love will follow me even as I follow him all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the pasture of the good shepherd king forever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good shepherd. We know that you're king, but that you use your king, your kingship to lay down your life for your sheep. I pray that each one of us would model that kind of leadership to the flocks that we are parts of, that we would we would be leaders by humility by sacrifice, and by love. I thank you for each of these sheep, that we can be sheep together in this little flock called Clyde Christian Bible Church. What an honor and a privilege it is to be a sheep in your care. I pray that we would hear your voice, follow your voice, and be led uh, to the green pastures and the clear waters of a life in you. Um, help us to lay down power. Uh, help us to, to submit to your power. And thank you that you use your power uh, to show us love. Um, help us to take that love to the world around us. 
Help us to be good sheep and to follow well. We pray all these things in the name of the Good Shepherd King Jesus. Amen. Um, thanks, little sheep. Thanks, big sheep. Big sheep. Oh, I'm going to get business cards that say that now. No. <laughs> Jesus Christ is a servant king, a good shepherd who laid down his life to call each one of us sheep into his flock, even if we've spent 40 days or 40 years wandering in the desert. And he like rubs your tummy and he's like, Dad, Dad, look at this. Tommy's huge. <laughs> <laughs> the baby's getting huge. And then he's like, come here, help me just grab it out of there. <laughs> that is so sweet and biologically impossible. <laughs> Let's put on a sermon and maybe you'll fall asleep to that. Oh, maybe one of dads. That'll make me fall asleep. <laughs> I don't get no respect. I just like to talk. I don't know any languages.